taking up John's gospel. Just from the outset, I'll say that uh, the outline that's provided in your worship guide was ambitious as I completed the development of the sermon. So we're actually going to take uh, just verse, uh, the first point in verses 31 and 32. And uh, the name of the title is Shifted to the Glory of God on Display, which I think you'll find is your first point. So John chapter 13, verse 31. So now when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Amen. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we have gathered in your presence to magnify your name, to acknowledge and ascribe unto you glory, for all glory dwells in you. And Father, we rejoice that we can be here under your word. And we ask, O God, that as you've appointed the preaching and the hearing of your word as the primary means of grace and the chief element in our worship, that you would now magnify yourself. Father, we are weak and we are sinners, and yet we come in dependence upon you and the spirit whom you have given to dwell within us. And we ask, O oh God, that you would be magnified, that even as we hear about your glory in the cross, that you would glorify yourself before the eyes of our faith, that we would behold you in majesty and splendor, and that even as we are here to worship you, we would do so, but that we would go away with a sense of awe and wonder in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. September 1989 actually was the night of the 21st going into the 22nd. We lived in Charleston, South Carolina and we went through Hurricane Hugo. We'll go into the great details about that storm. It was a category 5, it was one of the most powerful ones in the last several decades. It was a severe storm. But what I remember was the remarkable beauty after the storm left. We see something of that in New England. We have our powerful northeasters, and you know the clouds are dark, the snow blows, or in some cases just the wind, and then the storm is gone. In that case with Hugo, that next day is one of the most spectacular days I've seen in my life. It was so clear. Uh, the blueness of the sky was breathtaking. It was such a beautiful and remarkable day. It was so beautiful and peaceful, you could feel the calm. It was refreshing. Some of you will have a similar experience as that, in con- of the, in a similar contrast, when you've been together with family or friends. You've been in some setting, a group setting, and there's someone present who just causes an atmosphere of conflict. There's tension. The gathering has been burdened by a contrary spirit, and everyone feels it. The the fellowship is strained. But then suddenly, when that person leaves, there's a a lifting of spirits. There's there's a breeze of calmness that enters the room when they're gone. This seems to have been the effect in the upper room when Judas Iscariot left the upper room, when he departed, where Jesus was gathered with his disciples. As soon as Jesus departed, Jesus begins the upper room discourse. That's where we're at. With the opening of verse 31 and on for the next several chapters, we find ourselves in that section known as the upper room discourse. You'll remember that when 
Philip and Andrew brought the Greeks to Jesus, it was an indication, it was a marker that the hour had come. And Jesus makes a shift and uh, begins moving in a particular direction. And, And so it is in this case, when Judas went out, we were told, and it was night. And at that occasion, with his departure, there was a release attention. Jesus had announced that there was one in their midst who was going to betray him. And there was tension in that. They were questioning, each one questioning amongst themselves, Lord, is it I? But when Judas leaves, Jesus then begins something. He brings a remarkable blessing to the 11 men who remain. And what he has to say has blessed the church down through the ages. Many of you will recognize that these chapters we're moving into are are chapters that we turn to again and again. They're they're filled with a remarkable teaching, unique teaching, and it's, it's refreshing. So John writes then, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And you notice I read the, the last word immediately. There's, there's, at that point, with Judas' departure, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God the Father glorifies him immediately. We find ourselves as entering into uh, that hour that as Jesus has announced it was coming When Judas left room, there was the release of the strain and the fellowship of the friends. The the barriers of intimacy are removed. There's been one present who is not a man of faith. Uh, There's an element of there was a darkness with him. With his departure, those who are present with Christ are men of faith, and they are with their beloved teacher. And in that occasion, Jesus gives this rich discourse the richest discourse from our Redeemer. And at the same time, events are set in motion with the departure of Judas. Remember, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. There are things happening in the physical realm as well in the, as in the spiritual realm. realm. Events are set in motion in Jerusalem that will result in Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death and his burial and of course the glorious morn of his resurrection the son of man was about to be glorified i'm going to use just this one heading god's glory on display i've frequently noted the occurrence of irony in john's gospel Um, well here's another one what is about to happen Christ is going to be crucified. But what is Jesus talking about? Glory. His glory as the Son of Man. The glory of his Father. Him glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying him. There's this wonderful uh, relationship that, that Jesus has openly pronounced to those who would hear him of how he's been sent by the Father. He and the Father are one. And the, whatever he does, in a sense, is a reflection of what the Father is doing. And whatever glory he receives is then reflected back to the Father. But the irony is... Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is taking the final steps of humiliation. And what do they lead to? Glory. 
They lead to the glory of the Father. The Father is glorified. The Son is glorified. A crown of thorns will be pressed upon his brow. He will be spat upon. He will be struck with a reed and mocked. Hail, King of the Jews. Many in this very day look at this scene on that night. And they see weakness and a pathetic figure as Jesus submits to the will of the Father. The world being filled with unbelief looks at this scene and only sees humiliation. But in reality, what is shown is man's darkest hour. It is the darkest hour of mankind when those who are created in God's image in the ultimate and great rebellion seize the Lord of glory and they crucify him. It is man's darkest hour, humanity's deepest humiliation. I appreciate that my brother uh, picked John 3, 16 through 18, and I will refer to it often. Um, God so loved the world that what did he do? To this world, this rebellious world, to these creatures who are made in his image, who are in sin and iniquity. God so loved the world that he sent. He sent his only begotten son. The fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah that we are working through in our homilies earlier in the service. The son of God came to dwell amongst men. The light of God. He who is light, the light of the world, came in brilliance, in violent men murdered the prince of peace. How true then are the words that John recorded in verse 19, just beyond where our brother Elder stopped. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. Loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And we're told in scriptures that men do evil deeds in darkness. They, they think that the darkness obscures their deeds. It was at night that Jesus was arrested in a, in a garden of obscurity, uh, betrayed by Judas, uh, the religious leaders thinking that somehow they would avoid the, the retribution of the people, that the mobs would, would not be aware of this and they can get away with it, thinking that in the darkness, as they did the ultimate deed of darkness, that somehow... They'd go unchecked. But indeed, God held the nation accountable in 70 AD. Judas departs, and he goes with Jesus urging him. Isn't it interesting? Jesus urged him, be quick about it. When you look at all the events that are going to take place, there's a sequence that's unfolding. There's all these things that happen exactly as God decreed, and they all come together in those moments. Judas' departure at that time was critical to him going to do what he would do, to bring those who he would bring. Jesus continued on the discord, going to the garden, having time to pray, and then, boom, that moment would come. But Judas was sent away by Jesus saying, do it quickly. Because Jesus is not terrified. Jesus' life is not being taken from him. As our Savior, he gave himself. He laid down his life. For the Father had given him authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. And so Judas' departure set in machine, motion machinery that will grind on with the final result of Jesus' crucifixion. Oh, wonderful irony. In this, 
is Jesus' glorification. So when they had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. It's already unfolding. It's already happening. The events that are taking place, including the discourse and the events that will follow, this is all for the glorification of the Son of God. Truly, God's ways are higher than man's ways. His ways are past finding out. So we want to ask and answer a question. Answer it with three parts. How does the cross glorify Jesus? How does the cross glorify Jesus? Well, first, what takes place on the cross is the main event of all history. We mark our time. You know, we have unbelievers that have shifted now. They talk before current era and current era. I'm still, and I hope you still, I talk about before Christ and the year of our Lord. And for many hundreds of years, that was the case. Indeed, because the cross is central. Indeed, the cross is at the peak of history. Now, understand, when I talk about the cross, I'm not talking narrowly about the cross and the crucifixion. I use that in the same way that Paul does, that he sought to preach Christ and him crucified. Indeed, all of who Christ is, all of what Christ accomplished from his arrest, his false the false accusations, the crucifixion, his death, burial, and his resurrection, even to his ascension, because it's all of this that's wrapped up in the cross. The cross, then, is this central theme. Everything since the Garden of Eden has been moving to this moment. We saw in the book of Genesis uh, the tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, those who were serving the serpent seemed to snuff out, as it were, the, the sons of God through whom the seed of the woman would come. Nothing so important has happened in the course of history over those 4,000 years as the cross. Nor will anything so significant happen again until Jesus comes again. Is that not our hope? What a remarkable event. 4,000 years roughly into human history and Christ is crucified. And here we are some 2,000 years later. And what are we anticipating? Jesus coming in glory and splendor to gather us home with him. All the hope of Adam's race is found in Christ. And it must be that it is found in Christ and in him crucified. If he is not crucified, we have no hope. If he has not died for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins, then we must die and pay the penalty. If he has not received from God the, the wrath due for our sins, then we must receive that wrath. We can't even imagine what that wrath is like. Well, my friends, here's the good news of the gospel. This is a wonder of wonders. Just think about this. If you're hidden in Christ by faith, you will never know the wrath of God. You will never know it. You want to know what it looks like? Look at the cross. There's the wrath of God display. Not in the cruelty of the nails and the cross and the pain and the agony, though that was part of what God had appointed, but in the wrath of God that God poured out is, is manifest that something remarkable is happening as the skies are darkened at the middle of the day. And there's an earthquake as God is pouring out his wrath that the sins of his people deserve. It's spent. God's wrath, and this is that wonderful word that John uses in his first epistle, is propitiated. The wrath is gone. God is satisfied. 
because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so all the hope of Adam's race is found in Christ and him crucified. Salvation is purchased by Christ at the cross. All the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament are achieved and fulfilled in Christ, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection. It all culminates in that moment. Think about uh, the creation that's around us. The scriptures rightly tell us to understand that the creation declares the, the glory of God. And whether you're looking at the beauty of a flower, which Jesus said is arrayed with more beauty than Solomon in all his glory. When, when you look, as David did, at the, the night skies and beheld it and, and marveled at how it displayed the glory and the grandeur of God, we, do, we can do that. I, if you can go out on a, a, a cloudless night and, and a moonless night, preferable, and, and with all of the light pollution of our day, have you ever been in a remote place and beheld the magic? You will be overwhelmed as David was. The glory of God is on display. It's, it's on display as we look at one another. Here we are, image bearers, male and female of the living God. We are displays of God's glory all around us, even in the unconverted, even in those in unrebellion. But the greatest display of God's glory is at the cross at the cross, and what Christ has accomplished. Here, the glory of God is on display. One of our young people asked me a couple of years, and he was thinking on these things. He called me up. He says, Pastor, if God's so great and he is in control of all things, why would he decrease sin? Because it brings him glory. Why? God could have just decreed that Adam would have been faithful and he'd walked out that period of probation and he would have secured for all his posterity, life everlasting, no sin. And who would have got the glory? Think about that. Adam. But God decreed that there would be sin. And so Adam sinned. And we sinned in him. We all fell with him in that first transgression. Sin entered the world. And, and so you see down through the pages of Genesis and Exodus and on through the Pentateuch and through the life of the, the patriarchs and through the life of the nation, you see the manifestation of man's sin. You see how great is man's need. You see man's complete inability to do anything about sin. And perhaps you know from your own experience before God uh, subdued your heart unto Christ and you, you struggled and you strained and you aggravated yourself to no end, trying somehow to assuage the guilt and to, to make peace with God. And you found, even in yourself, no sufficiency. And, and believe me, you know, people will tell themselves 10,000 lies, trying somehow to think that they can be right with God on them or their own. But this is the beauty of the gospel. This, this is the glory of God on display. It is in Christ. God sent his son. He who had no sin, knew no sin to become a sin. He sent his son to save us from our sins. And so it is. Jesus is glorified in his cross because we see God's plan unfold. A plan that only God could have conceived of. And indeed, it's a plan that he had before the foundation of the earth. It was a plan that was in place before Adam's sin. God already had set it in place. But secondly, Jesus is glorified when he undoes and overthrows the curse for Adam's rebellion and sin. He undoes it. 
He rolls it back. He takes it away. And indeed, we're, we're still waiting for that. You remember when we were in Romans 8, how Paul wrote how the creation groans, longing for what? For when the sons of man, the sons of God will be displayed, when they'll be revealed, when those who are in Christ Jesus will be known who they are. Well, that'll have happened when Jesus comes again. And then then he will remove all the effects of the curse for sin. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we will dwell forever with the Lord. No sin. Oh, my friends, think of that. No sin. No temptation to sin. No ability to sin. Because Christ has undone what was done in Adam's rebellion. Paul makes much of this in Romans 5. You remember that we covered this some years back. How through, as he writes in verse 18, uh, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even through, through one man's righteousness, he's speaking of Christ, even through, so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. What did the curse bring? Death. In the day that you eat of it, God told Adam, you will surely die. But in Christ, we have life. That's what Jesus was offering. As we made our way through the first half of John's gospel, we see Jesus go with this message. In him is life. Life abundant, falling up from within as he gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe. And so Jesus is glorified when he undoes and overthrows the effects of Adam's rebellion and sin. Thirdly, Jesus is glorified on the cross when Jesus placed his foot on Satan's head. Notice the contrast there. It's his foot on Satan's head. In fulfillment of the prophecy of God in Genesis 3.15, he crushed Satan's head. It's interesting, in the, in the dark hour, here's another irony, in the darkness of that night is Satan thinks he has the upper hand, uh, that the son of the vineyard owner has come and he will kill him, and then the vineyard, that is all of creation, all of humanity, all mankind will be fully and completely and forever under his dominion. And he's so caught up in his greed and lust for glory and majesty to exceed and excel God, and he does not even realize the foot of the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, is on his head. And in the events that he is pursuing, it brings his own undoing. He's crushed, and thus defeating and destroying man's greatest enemy and conquering death forever, silencing the accuser's roar. Forever silencing the accuser's roar. This is what Paul celebrates in Romans 7. He talks about uh, the wrestling with sin, uh, that which is the reality of all who believe is we wait for the fullness of our glorification in Christ Jesus. Paul cries out near the end of that chapter, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because you you see, Satan loves to come and point out to us, sin again. You're worthless. You're just scum. Why do you think that God's going to bring you any blessing? Look at the way you live. And Paul says, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? What does Paul go on to say? Because of the cross of Christ, because of what Christ has accomplished there, because he has crushed Satan's head, Paul writes, there is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul can write that because it's after the cross. It's completed. The work is done. Satan is defeated. He has been crushed. So the heart bound up in unbelief looks at the cross and all it sees is a cruel instrument of death for the guilty. There are those in our day, and it's not unique to our day, who, who look at the gospel and they say that God is guilty of cosmic child abuse. Blasphemy. That's the heart of unbelief. What does Jesus says? Now the Son of Man is glorified, and all they see is cosmic child abuse. That's what unbelief does. It's blindness. It's deafness of ears. It's the inability to comprehend and understand. The Christian looks, and what do we see? We are filled with faith, a gift from God. We have faith from God, and we see Christ. We look at the cross, and we see the symbol of our salvation. We see that it was there that it was accomplished, and it is a picture of the love of God. And indeed, we glory in the cross. This is what Jesus is talking about. In this, now the Son of Man is glorified. And from where he sits, it's unfolding at that point. And he is being glorified with every step that he takes, culminating into the grave. But then the declaration coming in the resurrection. That night in the upper room, Jesus looked at the cross and saw that it was there that he would be glorified. And it was there that he would glorify the Father. How can this be? Well, we're using Isaiah, so I'll quote from those familiar words of Isaiah 53, verse 4. What does the prophet Isaiah tell us will happen? He's looking forward as the prophet, as God has opened his eyes, given him understanding, and put words within him to communicate to God's people. We look back, and we consider what happened to the cross. Here's the glory of God, because there we consider that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Jehovah's servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Notice how this is him acting on our behalf, acting for acting for our sake. He goes on, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. We had turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And thus Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. The glory of Christ is unfolding, even in the presence of of the apostles in that upper room. They do not understand it. They will look back and they will understand as the Holy Spirit gives them understanding. And thus they will write about it. But Jesus tells us here that both he and the Father are glorified in the cross. It's Christ who goes to the cross. It was the Father's plan that he would go to the cross. But it's Christ, the Son of God, who is crucified. Glorified here means to reveal or display, to reveal or display the glory of God. I often remind you of this, that all glory is God's glory. 
It is who he is. All glory resides in him. We have no glory to give unto God. It is at the cross that this glory of God then is on full display. When we talk about glorifying God, we ascribe, we reckon, we declare the reality of it. For it is so, not because we make it so. We don't make the glory of God more glorious because we declare it. It is all glorious in God. He is infinitely glorious. But in the cross, God displayed his glory. As I said earlier, we can look at the creation, and and indeed God's glory is on display. But it is most on display at the cross. John Calvin writes, In the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. Jesus gloried in his cross, and so should we. The cross on which Jesus dies tells us several things about God and, and tells us many more things. Indeed, we could spend days recounting them, but just let's consider a few briefly. First, we see the perfect justice of God who is holy. Many of you have been influenced by the ministry of R.C. Sproul. Um, I had heard of him. I remember the one and only occasion I think that I ever heard him in person. And he was talking about the attributes of God. We were in Charleston, South Carolina. And I, I just can't forget it, how he spoke of the attributes of God, all of them equal, all of them infinite. But he says, if one was greater, but there's not, but if there was one that was greater than any other, it would be the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And we see God's holiness on display at the cross. God is a holy God. And he has been infinitely offended by the sin of Adam when he rebelled and took of the tree and did eat. God's holiness has been mocked. But God's holiness remains. And indeed, we see the cross and the cross, the holiness of God. When the Son of God took on himself our sins, God did not withhold the justice of the sentence of death. That which was promised to the first Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He did. Immediately his fellowship and communion with God was cut off. Or as John, uh, Jesus says in John 17, we will we'll see it uh, in a few months, that this is eternal life, to know the Father. That's what Adam had in the garden. And this is what Jesus restores to us. He brings us to the Father. Adam ate of the garden of the, the tree, and he lost that. His fellowship and communion was taken away. He surely died. And of course, some 900 years later, he physically died and was buried. Adam's son deserved the wrath of God, his sons, as did all those coming from him. It seems like over the years that all the sinners have gotten away with. Oh, they've died, but... Where's the wrath? Well, it's at death, then the judgment. But Paul tells us that it was in God's divine forbearance that God passed over sins. Think about Noah. Remember what God said about Noah? Some of you are in your Bible reading plans. You were just in Genesis 6 a a few uh, days ago at this point. We're told that God looked upon all the earth, and Noah alone was righteous in God's sight. The flood comes upon the earth. They spend over a year in the ark. Finally, the ark settles. They come out, and we're told that Noah planted a vineyard. In the course of time, he made wine, and he got drunk. Drunkenness is sin. It's Noah, a righteous man. 
but God did not smite him. What about Moses' anger leading the people of Israel? I cannot even imagine. Don't take this the wrong way, but sometimes you guys can aggravate me, okay? <laughs> I'm sure I aggravate you. But I cannot imagine leaving a, leading a host of millions in a desert, a wilderness, with all kinds of hardships and, and obstacles and the murmuring and the complaining. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of the Exodus. You know, if there's one thing that stands about all the other, it's, it's just murmuring, grumbling, and they blame it all on Moses. And so it's understandable when the second time God tells him not to strike the rock as he had done it the first time, he said, speak to it. And Moses is angry. I think we all can get that. But God said, speak. And Moses disobeyed God. And he smote the rock. God still supplied the water. But Moses didn't enter the land. He only saw it. What about David's adultery? Oh, yeah, it's his son. The son of his adultery with Bathsheba died, and he has three other sons that uh, rebel, and you know, he loses them as well. Absalom, Adonijah. Um, I'm forgetting the fourth one at this point. See what David pronounced, you know, that when he heard the parable from Nathan, he says he should pay fourfold. Well, David did. All these men suffered some consequences for their sin. But the things that we know from the Scripture were not the wrath of God. We say that God looked over that. How could he do that? Because he was looking down the course of history to when his son would come into the world and he would bear the sins of uh, um, yeah, Abraham too, but Noah and Moses and David and indeed all those whom God the Father had given to, son, to his son. He would bear their sins and he would pay the penalty for their death. And they, they did not receive the wrath of God. But God's holiness was maintained. His justice was maintained. We've not suffered the wrath of God for our sins, have we not? It's because of the completed work of Christ. It was on the cross that the holy and the just one displays his perfect justice. Jesus died in the sinner's place. And in this is God glorified. My friends, if you have salvation in the Son, this resonates with you this message of the gospel this message of the cross this that jesus speaks now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him your heart cries out yes and amen oh where would i be if it were not for what god has accomplished god be glorified what compels you to come on the lord's day to gather with the saints and sing praises to god it's because god has had mercy on us god has saved us god has not dealt with us as our sins deserve he has dealt with his son as our sins deserve and we glorify God for what he has accomplished. Secondly, God is glorified at the cross in his faithfulness. God is glorified at the cross in his faithfulness. When Adam sinned, God promised that he would supply a seed of the woman, a particular seed of the woman. He would crush the serpent's head. It was going to be his son, a seed of the woman who would be a son. And Adam believed God, and it was accounted under his righteousness, because he's, he's childless, and yet he names his wife Eve, for she shall be the mother of all the living. God has promised something. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He's looking uh, early on, so sudden after sin, he's, he's looking to this God who's already demonstrated himself faithful. And how has Adam seen the faithfulness of God? In that God says, if you eat of the seed of this, this tree, or the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And God has proved himself faithful. And now God has said, I will send a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. 
And Adam believes him. God promised Abram that he would have a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would bless. And Abraham believed God, and it was accredited unto him as righteousness. God commanded Israel when they were in Egypt to place the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts, the doorpost and the lentil, so that when the angel of death came throughout Egypt, that they would not experience the blow of that death angel. And indeed, all the households that had blood of the lamb were spared, whereas all across Egypt, the firstborn of every, from Pharaoh to the least slave, died. But even in that event, it was pointing that God was going to send the seed of Abraham. And God says, you do this every year, because it's going to happen. The seed's going to come. Hundreds of years went by. A couple of thousand years went by. But God was faithful. And those who had faith trusted God's faithfulness. And indeed at the cross, that faithfulness was displayed and accomplished. You think about through Moses, God gave the whole structure of the sacrificial system that we find in the book of Leviticus for these sins, these sacrifices. And so Israel faithfully, God says, if you you do this, you'll be forgiven. There was an effectiveness in the sacrifices of those animals, not because their blood was sufficient, but because those who brought the sacrifice with faith, God forgave. But all of those animals, for all of those years, I can't even imagine the millions of animals that were sacrificed. But there was an expectation that God was faithful, and God was faithful. That faithfulness at the cross because the blood of all the bulls and goats, indeed, there, pointing to the cross, there, God's faithfulness, the promises that he made to Israel in the exodus with the paschal lamb, God's promise through all the sacrifices that were offered up on the altar in the tabernacle and later in the temple, all of these promises, God was faithful In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Christ came into the world to save the ungodly, just like God said. God is faithful, and it's displayed at the cross. Paul reasons, for this reason Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Paul says, to the glory of God. To the glory of God. We could go on for hours. Honestly, we could go on for days if we would take a look at all the attributes of God, how all the attributes of God are on full display in the cross. And therefore, God's glory, his very person, his attributes, the essence of who he is, is on display at the cross. He exalts his name. You think nothing of, say nothing of God's wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and truth, all seen at the cross. But there's one attribute that we want to say something about that above all the others is on display at the cross. The love of God. The love of God is displayed at the cross more than in any other place. You want to answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? Because God so loved the world. God is love, John tells us in his epistle. Why would God send his only begotten son to save sinners? Why would he have mercy on rebels? We wouldn't, right? Left ourselves an an offender against us, punish him to the full extent of the law. Make them suffer. That's what we want. The answer is God's love. The wages of sin is death. 
some of you have seen the, the movie National Treasure. Near the end when the treasure's been found, the one FBI agent says to, to those who found it, he says, but somebody's got to go to prison. And so they give up these other treasure hunters. Somebody had to go to prison. Well, when we consider our sin, somebody has to die. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. If not us, who? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. No one else could redeem the people of God. My friends, if you are a sinner without Christ, stop looking anywhere else. There is no other name found under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus alone is a Savior. He alone is accepted by the Father. There is no one else that can deliver you from the wrath of God. And if you continue to stand in your rebellion against the God of glory and refusing his command to come and to believe and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish in unrighteousness. You, you're mocking that God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's done. He's accomplished it. And he says to you, come. Earlier we heard the passage in the uh, assurance of pardon. And I was thinking about how in Romans we heard it so often. Whosoever. My friends, that is a wonderful word for sinners. Whosoever. God so loved the world that whosoever believes may be saved. What love. What amazing love. I, like you, am a miserable sinner. And I only understand in the least part just how wretched my sins are. Just how offended they are because I don't fully comprehend the, the glory and the justice and the holiness of God. But just a little glimpse that I'm able to see God would love me. Is that not what we all feel? The cry of our hearts? My friends, there's no greater display of God's love than on the cross. In it and all the events that flow from it and surround it, God is glorified. God did this. This was his plan before the foundation of the world was even laid. God hates Sin, and we must hate sin, especially our own sin. God hates sin, but he loves sinners. That's true. So much so that he sent his son, and the son glorified the father, and the father was glorified in the son. Oh, wonder of wonders, that we become children of the father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we do so, The scripture teaches that God glorifies us. What we shall be has not yet been seen. But when he comes again, what does Paul say in Romans 8? What's the culmination of that glorious golden chain? In Christ we're glorified. We have no concept of what that even means. But it's ours. Because Jesus has secured it for us. When Jesus comes again, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And I believe that's his shout as the Lord of glory, the Lord of life. And he gives the command with a shout of his voice. And the dead in Christ will come up out of their graves. And those who yet remain shall also be caught up together with him in the air. Paul says, He will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel of God and the trumpet of God. Oh, what a glorious cacophony. What a marvelous event when Jesus comes again and rends the heaven and the dead then are caught up to be with him and those who are alive will remain shall be caught up together into the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And Paul says, and thus 
shall we ever be with the Lord. And then we'll see his glory. We will see him as it is because sin will be removed from us. In our sinful state, we cannot look on the glory of God. The best that God could give to Moses was to hide him in a cleft of the rock and cover him with his hand and pass by declaring the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And Moses saw the backside of God. And when he came down from the mountain, the glory of God so radiated from him that the people said, cover your face. But we shall see him in his glory when he comes for us. My friends, this is the glorious good news of the gospel. Include with this. When Judas left the room, by God's decree, Judas set in the motion, set in motion events that would take place that night, culminating with Jesus hung on a Roman cross as the sin bearer. And he who knew no sin would become sin. So that we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him. When God's wrath was spent and justice was satisfied, Jesus cried out, It is finished. What a glorious word. I love it when Jesus makes those simple pronouncements. I'm waiting for that shout when he comes again. But it was finished, and he gave up his spirit to the Father, and he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. However, the grave had no claim on him. It could not hold him. Therefore, on that first day of the week, Jesus rose. He arose victorious and glorious. And the veil of his deity began to be pulled back just a little bit. You see that how when Jesus just suddenly is on the road with the two going to Emmaus. Or when the men, disciples are in the, locked in an upper room and Jesus appears in their midst. Begin to be seeing, begin to see that. Listen to the wonderful world of that. Um, Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, the wonderfully reformed Anglican from an earlier generation. He writes masterfully, The Son shows the world by his death how holy and just is the Father. And how he hates sin. He smote his son. Don't ever think for a moment that God does not hate sin. And so he says, how holy and just is the father and how he hates sin. The father shows the world by raising and exalting the son to glory. How he delights in the redemption of sinners. Which the son has accomplished. God exalts in the work that he has done. He has every right to boast in it. He's God. He has every right to the glory that we do not have a late, cannot lay claim to it. And what we see then in the gospel, here Jesus refers to himself and the Father. But my friends, the Trinity is part of this. The Trinity is fully at work in all this. The Holy Spirit is the one who's worked literally in those 11 that are left behind. Those are still with Jesus. In all of this, God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are glorified. Yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit seems to often be working in the background and within us, bringing us to the Son so he can bring us to the Father, but it is all in God. For if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. God's grand purpose is that we should ascribe to declare all glory unto God. Beloved, all you who love the Lord because he has saved you, glorify God. Glorify God in your lives. We're going to hear more about that next week as we move on. Remember this, you were bought with a price. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we do marvel at 
all that is revealed to us. These marvelous verses, we consider how Scripture all is uh, coalescing and coming together in the events that were unfolding that night. The fulfillment of the prophecies, the accomplishment of your great plan of redemption. Father, we rejoice that in your providence we dwell on this side of the cross and we don't look through a veil darkly as men of old did. Even, even the prophets, uh, as they were given a message, they, they longed to more fully comprehend that which you were declaring. Father, we thank you that we have the fullness of your revelation of these matters in the 66 books of the Bible. Oh, Lord God, stir us up to study these things, to declare these things, to leave these things so that we would glorify your life, you in our bodies as we live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. I picked that in light of I thought I'd be preaching further. But nonetheless, worthy.